Welcome to Gov Innovator. I'm Andy Feldman. An economist that I know once told me if there were a Nobel Prize for evidence-based policy, one winner would be Russ Whitehurst for his work in helping launch and lead the Institute of Education Sciences, or IES, within the U.S. Department of Education. IES has been a driving force in helping the education field to be more evidence-focused. In our interview, we'll explore what IES does and what lessons it provides for other public agencies. Here's a clip. We are, I think, firmly along in some kind of revolution in which the education research community, the new components of it, are operating in a way that is, uh, you know, high-level science as recognized by anybody. <laughs> and uh, I think that's a very positive uh, signal for, uh, for the future. Over the last 15 years, the field of education has become considerably more evidence-focused, including a growing number of high-quality studies about how to help students succeed in school. An important catalyst has been the Institute of Education Sciences. It's the independent, nonpartisan statistics, research, and evaluation arm of the U.S. Department of Education. Created in 2002 during the George W. Bush administration, it's continued to flourish under the Obama administration, and today has a budget of about $670 million and a staff of 180. To learn more, including lessons for other public agencies, we're joined by Dr. Russ Whitehurst. He was the first director of IES and served in that role from 2002 to 2008. Today, he's a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Russ, welcome. Well, thanks very much for being with me and allowing me to be with you today. An important context for our topic today is what the state of education research and evaluation was like before IES, going back a few decades now. This gets to why IES has been important. Tell us about that the field of education research and evaluation was not you know, firmly attached to the modern canons of social, behavioral, and economic science. It was off somewhere else where you bring political views to a discussion of, of, of subject matter, where you do a lot of observation studies, where you think uh, every child is unique and every school is unique and you could never do a randomized trial that would give you any information. And so what, what I think we accomplished was to provide an alternative model for what education research could look like as it was practiced outside the federal government. And that's ultimately, I think, had a significant uh, impact. We are, I think, firmly along in some kind of revolution in which the education research community, the new components of it, are operating in a way that is, uh, you know, high-level science as recognized by anybody. <laughs> and uh, I think that's a very positive uh, signal for uh, for the future. And Russ, for those who aren't familiar with IES, how do you explain it in a nutshell? It's an independent research agency within the executive branch, within the U.S. Department of Education, that's intended to uh, produce and disseminate research at the highest quality that's relevant to decision-making in education, what works for whom under what circumstances, and to do that in a way that's useful not only to the federal government but to the field, uh, to the field itself. So in that sense, it is not fundamentally different from the conceptual view of what the National Institutes of Health are. They do independent work. It's intended to impact what the federal government does as well as what uh, practitioners do in health. That's the role of IES in education. Next, Russ, I'd like to walk through some of the specific ways that IES has helped advance the use of evidence in education. One of them is by funding rigorous education research in the field. Am I right that this is pretty straightforward? If you want more high-quality research about what works, one way to help bring that about is to fund it. 
Well, you're, you're absolutely right. Money is a powerful tool. And notwithstanding the romantic view that uh, universities and researchers are doing their work out of intellectual curiosity, uh, if there's money on the table and the rules and processes for getting it uh, are, are clear and the prospects of obtaining it are reasonable, uh, they will come. And so putting money out there, let, letting people compete for it, I think, is, uh, is critical in generating supply. I will add that while it's uh, straightforward to think about doing that, it's not necessarily easy <laughs> to do it. We had to stand up peer review panels of distinguished people, establish rules for their operation, spend into the wee hours writing uh, research announcements that were clear and, and directive and appealing to people and had to monitor the process and correct it as we went, uh, as we went through it. But again, if the money is there, if it's uh, reasonably uh, dispensed, you will generate uh, researchers in universities that want to compete for it, and that's what we did. Another strategy that IES has used is to provide training grants to doctoral students in education to help them gain skills in rigorous evaluation methods. The idea here, am I right, is that if you want more high-quality research, it helps if researchers in the field are familiar with those methods. You need people who know how to do what it is you want done. And so we provided uh, very attractive pre-doctoral uh, and post-doctoral training grants for, for which uh, universities could compete. Uh, we also had a structural problem that had to be addressed, and that is that heretofore, education researchers were trained almost entirely in schools of education. But very few, if any, schools of education in, in uh, the beginning of this, of this century had the faculty or the interest and doing the kind of work that uh, IS needed done. So when we competed those grants, we required every applicant to, uh, to represent a collaboration across schools at a university so that uh, people from the regular science and economics departments would be part of the competitions. And that, uh, more quickly than I thought it would, generated brand new training paths that uh, uh, produced within short order, four years for PhD uh, students, brand new, uh, well-trained people who came into the field, who published, and who have transformed it uh, fundamentally. A third strategy that IES uses is to have a repository of education studies that have been reviewed by IES so that decision makers at the state and local levels can quickly see which studies meet different standards of rigor. This is the What Works Clearinghouse it currently has more than 10,000 studies reviewed. Tell us about the value of the What Works Clearinghouse and also about the value of these evidence standards that IES uses. Well, again, we were facing a situation in which almost everything out there was, I think, uh, of a quality that shouldn't be consumed by practitioners and policymakers. But how were they to distinguish the wheat from the chaff? And so we thought they needed a trusted source. Uh, like the FDA is a more or less trusted source for uh, for interventions in medicine and drug trials. We wanted to create that in education. To do it, we had, because it's government, and you can't just sit behind your desk and decide what's good and what's bad, we had to have very clear rules for what constituted rigor. We established them with some pain in the process, began uh, reviewing studies, and the What Works Clearinghouse has been uh, very successful, not only in the quantity of work that it's looked at, but in its ability over the past uh, 12 years to identify over 100 interventions that actually have strong evidence of effectiveness. And people are interested in that information. They want to choose what works, not something that doesn't work. And uh, I think appetite for that uh, was there at the beginning, and it has continued to grow. 
Early on in the What Works Clearinghouse, Russ, I know that there was some criticism of the standard. Some people felt that the bar was set too high in terms of the level of rigor that a study needed to meet What Works Clearinghouse standards. It's like a good housekeeping seal of approval for methodology. But am I right that those standards created incentives for researchers uh, to do that level of rigor? And we've seen more studies of that type since. Oh, that's right. And so we went from uh, a, a lot of debate about whether this was reasonable at all, whether the standards were even appropriate to education, to a situation in which when appropriately trained people are thinking about the work that they're going to do, they look at the What Works Clearinghouse standards because they don't want to do something that they've invested a lot in that won't meet those standards. And so the standards themselves, I think, have had a very important role in defining for the field uh, what constitutes rigor for particular types of, of studies. And these are, by and large, studies of, of what works and what, what doesn't, interventions, programs intended to improve uh, education outcomes for students. All of the strategies that we've discussed so far are really external-facing. This is about helping the field to use evidence about what works. But IES also acts as an internal consultant to the department about evaluation and evidence issues. At the same time, though, it also is an independent, nonpartisan entity. My question is, what did it take for IES to try to get that balance right? It's a twofold process. A lot of this occurs at the staff level. So senior career people in IES work with other program offices in the department with respect to their own evaluation needs agenda, and often their funding is used for the studies that IES carries out. So collaborative collegial relationships there are very important. Uh, at the level of director, it requires a lot of effort to, uh, to be uh, useful to the secretary, de deputy secretaries in the department without becoming just uh, another person who is supposed to carry out a political agenda. So you listen, you're responsive to their needs. They are uh, at least as legitimate a customer <laughs> as a school superintendent. And you ha try to have a stream of work that is useful for people at higher levels in an administration and to provide it to them uh, in, a, in a way that they can consume and with a timeline so that there aren't really uh, any necessary surprises. One related question, Russ. I assume that being in the room as the IES director for important decisions by the agency, decisions by political leaders, in other words, is critical. If you're in the room, then you can say, this decision that you're discussing has no evidence behind it or has a lot of evidence. You may want to choose one policy direction or the other, but at least let me share with you what the research says. I think it's very important, and my ability to do that waxed and waned during the eight years I was in, in federal service. Uh, the most productive time, I think, was uh, a period under Secretary uh, Margaret Spellings in which she had a regular weekly policy committee meeting. And I sat at the table, and uh, when there was going to be a topic for which evidence was going to be related. Obviously, I was uh, prepared and, and told in advance what the topic was so I could talk about it. And many things turned out to have evidence dimensions that weren't obvious to the people presenting it. So my role was to, to, to butt in when I thought I needed to and say, well, wait, but the evidence doesn't show that. But wait, you need to know this. And then shut up and let the policymakers decide what they, what they wanted to do with that. So the role is to be a resource to bring to bear information that ought to be relevant and to help people understand it if they need to, and then to understand that you're not the policymaker, 
you need to let the policymakers uh, do their job, even when the decisions they make uh, are not the ones that, uh, that you would make individually. A final question for you about lessons learned. What's your advice for other federal agencies that want to significantly increase the capacity of their own organization, but also of the field, state and local partners, to use rigorous evaluation? What are some lessons from the IES experience? You need a degree of independence. Uh, any body of work that is going to have an impact on a political discussion with regard to policy is going to be difficult to sustain if there isn't the independence to carry that out, even when the findings run afoul of, uh, of policy positions that, uh, that politicians may have already staked out and want uh, and are reluctant to, to abandon. So independence is important. Part of that is a dedicated funding stream. You don't want to have to come hat in hand for every dollar you need to get uh, to get work, because if you're in that position, you will feel at certain times a motive to uh, do not what is right, but what is necessary to get the next dollar to sustain your operation. You certainly need talent. And so people, again, who know how to do this work are necessary if you want to get the work done. And you have to pay uh, attention to, to what is needed. So this is not... Uh, basic science. We're not cutting nature at its joints. The questions that are important are determined in the public sphere and through a political conversation. And so if uh, the interest is accountability, you have to do research on accountability. If the interest is soft skills, if that's where the nation is going, you have to have a program of research on that. So being responsive and helping to create demand for what you're doing is an important part of it as well. We'll end this portion of the interview here, but the conversation will continue. I'm going to ask Russ Whitehurst about the origins of IES, and I'm going to post his answer to the podcast website. But for now, Russ, thank you for sharing your insights with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity to do so.